I'm a businessman. First foremost. I want no further conflict with him. Will you tell him from me that he can live or he can die? Vincent, will you shut up? Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Michael Corleone attempts to make his business fully legitimate, but he finds that it's not easy for a gangster to retire. Listen as we chat about a comical death by cannoli, a deeply disturbing romance, and just how fat the voice of Fat Tony really is. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in and make me find out if The Godfather Part 3 stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and joining me for the 299th time is my buddy James Brief. 299 times I've said, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time, or some derivation of that. Uh Uh-huh, indeed, indeed. You know, Al, we've done around 300 of these things. Do you know what we've done around a dozen times? Nick's Marathon. That is correct. Do you know what we're doing this weekend, Al? Nick's Marathon. My third question is, what the hell is Nick's Marathon? Well, I'm very glad you asked. So Nick's Marathon is the other thing that you and I do together. It is a charity that we run. It is named after our friend Nicholas Capabianco, uh, who passed away from leukemia. And what we do every year is we get together and we play video games and we raise money in Nick's name. And we actually didn't hold the event in 2021 because of uh, COVID. And we were going to do it in January. And then we postponed it because of uh, COVID. And so the real date of Nick's Marathon is March 25th to March 27th, 2022. And if you're listening to this podcast episode right away, then that's right now. So this weekend, you can watch us at nicksmarathon.org. James and I and friends of ours are going to be playing video games all weekend. We'll live stream everything at nixmarathon.org. You can watch us. You can chat with us. You can make fun of us. You can tell us how terrible we are at Mario Kart or whatever the hell we're playing. And if you're so inclined, if you're able, you can make a tax-deductible donation that goes to a great cause. You can also join us if you want to play with us. Just tweet at us at nixmarathon. You can even tweet at Test of Time, and Al will still see that. I will, but this weekend I'll be checking the Knicks Marathon stuff more. But he loves when you tweet him at Test of Time Pod, so... I do, but I love when people tweet us at Knicks Marathon, too. I I love all of it. We also have a change of venue. We are going to be doing Knicks Marathon at my house on Long Island for the very first time. Every other time we've ever done it, it's been at your apartment. Or actually, I guess in 2020, it was at everyone's place because we did a remote version and that was uh, your place and my place and everyone else's place. But yeah, this is the first time we're going to be doing it fully here at my house because your apartment is having some work done and it uh, wasn't conducive to 20 
smelly guys hanging out in your apartment playing video games. No, but I'm going to tell you something right now. Originally, we were going to do this uh, early in January. And because I knew there was going to be renovation, I had a whole plan. I was going to cordon off like a quarter of the apartment, put down some... uh, painters tarp those plastic tarps and i was gonna let people like spray paint and tag the uh the walls it was gonna be a lot of fun oh man we can still do that next time in your newly renovated apartment right absolutely there's no not absolutely oh okay furniture these days is all paint proof right uh we'll find out let's find out uh hopefully everyone will not trash my house the way we always trash your apartment I'm bringing the flaming Cheetos with extra dust. No, 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 don't bring that. Oh. I'm bringing just a a bowl of Cheetos dust and I'm bringing one of those Vornado fans. No, don't bring those two things together. I do like flaming hot Cheetos, though. It's going to be a really fun weekend. Watch us. If you do happen to be listening to this podcast episode later than March 25th through March 27th, 2022, that's okay. You can still go to nixmarathon.org and make a tax-deductible donation. You just won't be able to watch us play video games live. But that serves you right for not listening to the podcast episode right away. So lesson learned for you. Um, Aren't you matching every donation up to $2 billion, Al? No, that is incorrect. Oh, okay. I thought I heard that somewhere. No, you just made that up right now. Oh, okay. But let's talk about The Godfather Part 3. This is the movie that caps off The Godfather trilogy and is not as universally beloved as Part 1 and Part 2. I read some article. I forget exactly how they worded it. It was something about The Godfather's 50th anniversary, and it was something like, The Godfather is a beloved classic, as is its sequel, The Godfather Part Two. Also, there was a third part. You know, like, it's just like this complete afterthought. And I guess, in theory, we didn't have to review it right now, but I was curious to watch it again, just to see why people hate it so much. And it's got Al Pacino, and it's got Diane Keaton and Talia Shire, and it's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. I just figured it was worth watching. You know, this film is also interesting from our perspective because I remember this coming out during Christmas of 1990. A lot of things were like, oh, it's coming out so far after the first two films. And we just talked about a film called The Matrix Resurrections. That was released in 2021. And The Matrix Revolutions was released in 2003. So this is 18 years later that that film came out. Godfather Part 2 came out in 1974. Part 3 came out in 1990. That's 16 years. You know, in modern times, it's not that crazy. I mean, Blade Runner came out, a sequel that really no one asked for, but that sequel, uh, Blade Runner 2049, that came out 40 years after the, uh, the last one. I just found it interesting looking back on it now. I remember thinking this is so far out. It's like making a sequel to The Ten Commandments or Wizard of Oz, like an old, old film. I'm just saying the practice is done very often these days. Direct sequels to things that are like 20 years or older. Yeah, it happens all the time now. I feel like every day there's another like article I see about, oh, they're working on a Beetlejuice 2. Top Gun Maverick is coming out this year. Like, they do that all the time now. I I just found that interesting. So to get that out of the way, that was one criticism that doesn't really hold up. That's just at least what I vaguely remember when this film came out. Like, why is this uh, coming out, part three? It's so long ago. 
Well, I think the answer to that question is because um, they all just kind of wanted to make some more money. And Not some money, Al. Those first two films, they made gangbusters, <laughs> godfathers of money. Oh, that was terrible. No, that wasn't that funny. That, that was, you should be ashamed of yourself. I am ashamed of myself. Good, 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 good. But before we get into that, let's talk about what the movie itself is about. It takes place in 1979, and the Corleone family has gone legitimate. Michael has sold all of his interests in gambling and violence, but he still reels from the guilt brought upon himself after he ordered the murder of his brother, Fredo. When a real estate deal with the Vatican makes Michael think that he can bring himself and his family redemption, he finds that exiting the mob isn't as simple as he wished. So when this movie came out in 1990, I believe it was far less successful than its predecessors, right? Well, I mean, it was still very successful. So I was actually surprised to see how successful it was. And the film had a much larger budget than the others. But, you know, I don't know what the comparable budget would be in 1974. But this film had a $55 million budget. That's a big budget for 1990. Yeah. And it took in $136.9 million domestically. So I would say it's probably a pretty profitable film. It opened at number three with uh, $6.3 million dollars. And the number one film that weekend partially was about suspected brain tumors in uh, educators. It's not a tumor. Well, I mean, there was a suspicion. Maybe it's a tumor. It's not a tumor. Kindergarten cop. Correct, yes. I kind of think that's funny that, like, the sequel to, like, a Best Picture followed by Best Picture. And then this film released also Best Picture. Nominated for Best Picture. And a ton of Academy Awards. And Kindergarten Cop beat it. I mean, that was just what people needed to see at that time, I guess. And the opening of the film, it really connects it to the Godfather Part 2. It shows the Corleone mansion. It kind of looks like it's in a little disarray. I don't know if it's abandoned or it's not the peak of luxury that it was in the first two films. And uh, there's a flashback of sorts reminding the viewer of the death of Fredo at the hand of Michael Corleone. And, you know, kind of juxtaposes that he is this now pious man who has done, you know, what is one of the worst sins you could do. I guess killing your kid might be worse or your parent, but your brother is pretty high up there. Yeah. But the the movie kind of starts like the first two movies do with this big family celebration. You know, in the first movie, it's uh, Connie's wedding. And the second movie, it's Michael's son's communion. And in this movie, it's Michael getting this award from the Vatican. He's being commended for his charity work. And Michael is now not a gangster. He is legitimate. And you know that he's legitimate because he says the word legitimate a lot. Like if you were going to do a Godfather Part 3 drinking game, take a shot every time Michael says that he's gone legitimate, you will be extraordinarily drunk very, very quickly. We meet a new character in this film, Vincent, played by uh, Andy Garcia. He's Michael's nephew, and we didn't know this character beforehand, but it turns out he's Sonny's, uh, I guess you can call him his bastard son. Uh, he had some mistress or something, and, and Vincent it was the uh, result of that affair. It's from, actually, the scene in the first movie where Sonny is having sex with one of Connie's bridesmaids at the wedding in the beginning part of Godfather Part 1. Like, you see him, like, having sex with her in some room. Apparently, in that 
Trist, that is where Vincent was conceived. Not that that really matters, but we do see Sonny having sex with someone who isn't his wife in the first movie. So you can buy the fact that he has an illegitimate child. We also meet Michael's adult children. We see them as like little kids in uh, part two, but here they are as adults and the son is Anthony and the daughter is Mary. Mary is played by Sophia Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola's real life daughter. And yeah, let's talk about this uh, this casting right now. It was famously supposed to be Winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, she dropped out. And there's a couple other names they went through. And ultimately, it fell upon Francis Ford Coppola to cast somebody. And he cast his daughter, Sofia Coppola. I don't know how old Sofia Coppola was here, but she's very young. I would be surprised if she's 20 years old. And... You will not find a one or two sentence criticism of this film that does not involve her performance. Yeah, uh, she was 19. I just looked it up. For me, it's not just that like she's not a great actor in this movie. It's also just her whole arc, which begins in this beginning scene, which is that when she meets her cousin Vincent, she flirts with him. And their relationship is a big part of this movie. And it's a romantic relationship. And they are first cousins. The fact that Vincent was born out of wedlock doesn't change the fact that Vincent and Mary, their fathers, were brothers. I totally agree. And this isn't even one of these Luke and Leia kind of things where they don't know or they've done these stories in Game of Thrones where they don't realize they're related and then they they are attracted and, oh, that's why they're attracted because they're related. And no, they have to kind of be told at some point in this film, like, you shouldn't be with Mary. It's a weird thing that doesn't need to be there. Exactly. Exactly. But we see that Michael's son, Anthony, wants to not be in the family business. He's in law school. He doesn't even want to do that. He wants to sing. And Michael disapproves of that. He thinks that his son should at least be a lawyer. He should do something that's, you know, more grounded and he can have a real honest job. But Kay talks Michael into letting him leave law school and be a singer. And this is a big deal because in part two, Michael literally slams the door on Kay being in his family, being part of his life. We find out that they were divorced and Kay remarried. Michael still resents Kay and they haven't talked in many years, but he agrees to let his son do his own thing. Vincent also comes in to talk to Michael about his rival, Joey Zaza. Zaza now runs like the old Corleone mafia business because Michael's legitimate, but Vincent really doesn't like Zaza, and he says that Zaza is insulting Michael on the street, and Michael says, listen, I'm not involved in this world anymore. This is between the two of you. Just Can you just shake hands and, and forgive each other? And they do, but then Zaza kind of whispers bastardo to Vincent, and then Vincent bites his ear. It's almost like a Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield kind of a thing, right? Like, He's trying to rip off some cartilage there. Oh, I was looking for a Holyfield-like ear. He doesn't actually rip off anything. It's, okay. it's uh, just you see a tooth mark in there. And as a huge Simpsons fan, I do have to mention that Joey Zaza is played by Joe Mantegna, who voices Fat Tony on The Simpsons. 
And it's kind of funny just like seeing that guy talk because I'm used to hearing his voice and seeing Fat Tony. And Montaigne is not fat in this movie. I don't know what he looks like today, but uh, he's not overweight. He's a skinny little guy. I've never known him as a fat guy. I mean, I don't watch the uh, you know daily Joe Montaigne feed, but uh, <laughs> he was never he never looked like Fat Tony. But I do like that he's kind of playing a Fat Tony uh, type in this film. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But later that night, uh, Vincent's at home with a journalist who's trying to find out about Michael Corleone, played by Bridget Fonda who is a babe. She looks great in this movie. But while they're uh, in Vincent's apartment, two guys come in and try to kill Vincent. Vincent gets one of them to admit that it was Zaza who sent them. And now he's even more pissed and wants to kill Zaza even more. I love this scene. And, you know, this reminds me a little bit of a scene. We we talked about it uh, in Godfather Part 1. Like, why is Michael so kind to uh, Connie's soon-to-be-dead wife who beats him? Like, oh, calm down. I'm not going to kill you. Here's a ticket to Vegas. I'm not going to make my wife uh, a widower. Just just tell me who sent you. Who set this up? Who got Sonny killed? And then the moment he says him, very shortly after, I was brutally killed. And Vincent does the same thing. He... um, Basically, he goes, relax, guy. Here, have a cigarette, man. I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to know who sent you. He is, like, shaking. He can barely put that cigarette in his mouth. And he's like, Joey, Zaza sent us. And then the second he says it, Vincent holds up the gun. He's like, no, no, don't do it. And then he shoots him, like, through the hand in his face. It's a pretty cool scene. I like this scene. I think Andy Garcia is well cast in this. I'm going to say that. I like him in this role. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he doesn't have like the weight of a young Pacino or a young De Niro. I don't think this part is necessarily written to the level of uh, 1974 Pacino or De Niro. Yeah, I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that like based on the fact that it's the third Godfather movie, he's going to be compared in that way. And yeah, it's not totally fair that he would be compared, but I'm just saying he's very good but just not De Niro Pacino level great. And that's an unfair comparison, but, you know, whatever. And now we get into, I guess, what is sort of the plot of this film. There's this sort of real estate deal with this conglomerate called Immobiliary Internacional, and it's some kind of real estate business that the Vatican has like a 25% cut in. Something, something, something. Michael Corleone wants to uh, to invest in this deal. You know, it will now thrust the Corleone family into being like the Medici's. I mean, I don't know if you know the Medici's. No. Uh, they're an Italian family. They basically invented banking. All modern banking is invented by the Medici's. And they're fabulously wealthy. He'll basically be one of the biggest real estate owners in the world after this deal. Right. And it's like, it's a legitimate deal. It's a growth opportunity. He looks at it. But there are still like these lingering connections to his old mafia life. Right. This is not a completely legit deal in that there are going to be some underhanded schemes behind the scenes here uh, with this real estate deal. But, uh, you know, the idea is he's trying to do something that's a little uh, legitimate. Right. And so while he's trying to make this deal happen, Zaza and a lot of his old mafia friends, they want 
a taste. You know, Michael's going to be making all this money. They want to make a little money too. And Michael doesn't want to do that. So he invites them all to Atlantic City and he basically just hands everyone envelopes full of cash and says, look, you're not going to be a part of this deal, but you've made me money. I've made you money. I'm buying you out. Here's a whole lot of cash. And let's say our goodbyes and go our separate ways. And no hard feelings. And all of the guys who are there are happy, except for Joey Zaza, who doesn't get anything. And this is an insult. It's a slap in the face. And I didn't really understand why Michael does that, mainly because while Vincent's telling him, we have to kill Zaza, Zaza's the enemy, Michael's like, no, we don't need to kill him. It's fine. It's not a big deal. He's a low-level thug. It's not worth it. So if he's handing everybody cash to buy them off, why not just throw him an envelope full of cash? He's super rich already. Buy this guy off. He won't be a problem. But by not doing that, he insults him. And then shortly after that happens, Zaza leaves in a huff. Don Altobello, who's this old timer guy who's trying to make the peace, he goes after Zaza. And then a helicopter comes down and opens fire into the room, killing everybody almost, except for Michael and uh, Vincent and like maybe one or two other people. But, you know, it seems clear that Zaza or Altabello orchestrated this hit. But, you know, like the thing with uh, Sonny's hit in the first movie, this had to have been pre-planned. It's not like something that could have just been called in at that moment. Right. So once again, like the first two films, there is a traitor in the midst. We don't know who it is yet. And uh, Vincent is Sonny's son. And Sonny was the hot-headed guy. So Vincent, he's kind of hot-headed. And he wants to get revenge on Zaza. Michael, he's older, wiser. He doesn't want to be a violent guy anymore. And he doesn't want to go against Zaza. But Connie, Talia Shire, finally, they're giving her some juicy stuff to do. Yep. She's really getting her feet wet in this. And she's basically, she's going over Michael's head. And she's giving Vincent the go-ahead. She's like, you should go take care of this. Right, because Michael realizes that Aldobello is the traitor and he has like a diabetic attack, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word. He's been trying the whole first half of this film. You're right. They say legitimate a lot of times. And then he has that line. He realizes I can't go legitimate. And he has that just when I try to come out, they pull me back in. And it's such a Pacino line. He delivers some great Pacino lines. There's a part where Vince is trying to say something and he goes, Vincent, will you shut up? And it's such a great Pacino line. Yeah. See, a couple weeks ago, I said how I liked how young Pacino doesn't overact in Godfather Part 1. He doesn't really do it in Part 2 either. In this movie, he starts doing it, and I don't love it. I don't think he needs to. I feel like there's a fine line between acting and showing anger and just, like, yelling. And I feel like this is just Pacino yelling. Oh, I agree with you. I think by 1990, he was doing almost an impression of Michael Corleone from the films people had seen so much. I'm just saying it's a great Pacino. Yeah, I get it. But like he he passes out and he's in the hospital and Connie kind of like takes over and starts giving orders. So that clears the way for Vincent to kill Zaza. It's at a parade. It's sort of like the scene with uh, Don Finucci in yeah, Godfather yeah, 2. It also looks like there are Klansmen in this parade. Like there's 
people wearing like white hoods, maybe they're not supposed to be Klansmen. I don't know, but there's people wearing white hoods that certainly look like Klansmen to me. And then it's like, it's part of the assassination attempt because one of the guys like rips off his hood and he's like, ha ha, shoots uh, Zaza or one of his uh, goons or whatever. Well, Vincent kills Zaza. Right. So I guess he must kill someone else. But there was some guy wearing a white hood in this parade. And this movie is taking place in 1979, 1980. I can't imagine that there would be like hooded Klansmen walking down a parade in New York City in Little Italy. The only thing I could imagine, and I didn't particularly pick that up, the only thing I can imagine is it's one of these, you know how there's like swastika-like things that are not swastikas? I would imagine maybe there was some kind of Italian, uh, the Catholic kind of outfit that looks like that, maybe. Maybe. Meanwhile, there is more of Vincent and Mary like flirting and getting together It's also extra creepy because in the scene when they first kiss, they keep calling each other cuz, like over and over again. It's like, you look good today, cuz. Thanks, cuz. Hey, can you help me make this gnocchi, cuz? Sure, cuz. I love you, cuz. I love you too, cuz. And then they start making out. It's not even that like they're trying to forget about the fact that they're cousins. They keep talking about it over and over again. It's weird. And there's no payoff for that. I mean, I guess it's that Michael has a reason. There could be a million reasons Michael doesn't want Vincent to be with uh, with Mary. Well, the reason that they keep saying over and over again is that it's dangerous. And that's true in the sense that it's dangerous for Mary to be with someone like Vincent because Vincent is a mob boss and he's violent and people hate him and will want to kill him and things like that. So it is true that it's dangerous for Mary to be with him. It's kind of like the the drinking game about legitimate. They refer to their relationship as dangerous a lot more than they use the word wrong. Eventually, Michael says, this is wrong. You guys are cousins and you shouldn't be together. The bigger concern is it's dangerous for you to be with this guy. And it kind of feels like really the bigger problem, though, is it's wrong for you to be with this guy. I'm being very judgy about uh, romantic relationships among first cousins. I don't know. I I just feel like that's pretty fucking creepy. A little bit, a little bit. The film pivots a little bit, goes to Italy now. There's a meeting in Sicily with uh, Don Tomasino. We also get uh, some uh, meeting at the Vatican. And they're talking more about these deals. And there's a new guy that's going to be the new pope. And Michael meets with uh, Cardinal Umberto, and he does something that uh, he's done the first time, and he says the first time in 30 years, he's doing a confession. And he confesses to the one thing that just Michael can't get over, and that's, of course, he's rattled with guilt about uh, Fredo's murder. And Lamberto accepts the confession, and there is, you know, some hope for Michael because he says, you know, following Catholic dogma, that even though you are going to suffer for your sins, there is a possibility of redemption. Perhaps because Michael is so remorseful of it, and he's genuinely confessing, I feel like the the cardinal is giving him like a slight possibility of redemption for his soul, if you will. Maybe, yeah. I think some of this stuff with Michael and his feelings of guilt and his working towards redemption are pretty interesting. The problem is, though, that a lot of that is kind of mired in like this immobiliary deal, which is also still going on. And is it a good deal? Is it a bad deal? Is it a deal that Michael wants? Is it a swindle? Are they conning him out of all of his money? 
now we have said this three weeks in a row, but I found this to be very confusing. I didn't really get it. I didn't understand what was happening. But basically, Vincent goes undercover with Don Altobello. Michael tells him to and says, you're going to go in with him and find out what's going on with this deal. There's this other guy, Lucchesi, who's basically like the one who is like the real evil mastermind, I guess. I don't fully get it. But um, basically, Altobello and Lucchesi, they hire a hitman who's going to go after Michael and kill him in order to kill the deal, I guess. I think. I have to admit the Mobiliari deal, this part is very confusing. And uh, I, I didn't quite understand the intricacies of this deal. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better that it wasn't just me. Yeah. You talked about in the first film a couple of weeks ago how uh, Diane Keaton, who's a great actress, but she doesn't get much to do in the in the first film. Second film, she definitely has a couple uh, you know, meaty scenes. But in the third film, they definitely give her a lot of dialogue. And her and Michael, she kind of forgives them. And they kind of still love each other. And then, aw. I don't know that she forgives him. She admits that she loves him and she always will. But I don't know if there's forgiveness there. She says at the beginning of the movie that she dreads him. And Michael says that he doesn't want her to dread him. They kind of share a little bit of a moment, but I don't know that there's forgiveness there. I'm not sure about that. Maybe forgiveness isn't the right word, but um, this is people that they are very bitter divorced parents that now can be in the same room together kind of thing. Right, 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 right. Yes, that is true. And then the old Pope dies and Cardinal Lamberto, who is the one who accepted Michael's confession, he becomes the new Pope and they're going to go forward with the Immobiliari deal. But because the bad people in the Vatican don't like that deal, they decide to kill the new Pope, even though he's only been Pope for, I don't know, a week or two or something. They assassinate him with uh, some tea. Meanwhile, Michael appoints Vincent the new godfather. He says, you are no longer a bastard. You are now Vincent Corleone. You are the godfather. Everyone rushes to kiss his ring. The only stipulation that Michael gives him is that he has to definitely, for real this time, stop going out with Mary, a.k.a. Michael's daughter, a.k.a. Vincent's first cousin. And Vincent really cares for Mary, but he goes along with it because... He really wants to be the godfather. Yep. Now we have the opera house. And Anthony, he's going to be performing. So Michael's in attendance. But there's also some assassins that Vincent knows about. So he's got some of his goons going around. And at the same time, Altabello, he's going to be at this uh, opera. So Connie, she has a plan to exact revenge. She gives uh, Altabello a poison cannoli. I love this, like, sweet old man. Uh, no, sorry, he's not, a, he's not a sweet old man. No. But he's this, like, he's kind of a cute old man. And he's, like, eating. He's chomping on, like, like a little kid. It's kind of like he is really enjoying this cannoli and god he's watching him and there was just something i don't know comical about it that he's just like licking his fingers and enjoying it. and then you just see him like slumped over in his chair i don't know i found that somewhat comical it is comical i mean after three of these movies you see people gunned down all the time you see people you know strangled to death with piano wire watching someone eat a poison cannoli 
It is a little funny. He doesn't trust Connie when she first hands him the cannoli and he makes her take a bite and she takes a tiny little nibble and then he's like, eh, okay, fine. And then he eats it. It is funny. But this opera scene really dragged on. Like, it's a fair comparison to, like, those other scenes from the first two movies, the bloodbath montages, basically, except this opera scene goes on and on and on. I kind of felt like I was watching an entire opera while this thing plays out. Oh, they definitely show way too much of the opera, but I didn't look into it, but I will bet you that whatever was going on in that opera is symbolic of what's going on. I think that's probably why they showed all of that. It definitely is. You don't need to look it up. I mean, there's a part where the woman watches someone die and she like puts a a thing over her head like in mourning, like a shawl, I guess. And then at the end of the movie, Connie does that exact same thing. They're going for the parallels, not at the opera, but earlier when um, Michael and Kay are walking around Italy, they walk by like a puppet show. And in the puppet show, the father kills his daughter It stabs her through the heart because the daughter is dating her cousin, which is, you know, an exact parallel of what's happening with Michael's life and Mary and everything. It's really, really fucking on the nose, which is annoying. But in this opera scene, the assassins who are there to kill Michael don't. They fail during the show. Michael's assassins who go to kill like the Vatican guys who messed up the Immobiliari deals, those work. Also in the montage is the death of the new pope who is poisoned. And that one is like not part of the Corleones winning because they like the new pope. So when the new pope dies, that's like a bad thing for them. So it doesn't kind of fit in the model of like these. All the pieces coming together at the end. Exactly, exactly. And then while they're outside of the play after the opera, they kind of figure, yay, they sort of dodge the bullet literally and metaphorically. But then the assassin goes and shoots Michael. It looks like he shoots at him twice and once maybe hits him in the shoulder or something. But the other bullet hits Mary in the chest and she dies. Vincent immediately kills that guy who who shot Mary. But Michael's daughter has been killed. It wasn't being close to Vincent that was dangerous. That's what everyone was saying the whole movie. It was being close to Michael was dangerous. And she's dead and it is a heartbreaking moment then it just skips ahead to like this little epilogue scene where michael's sitting in front of this sicilian villa and he keels over and dies and that moment is one of the few things i remembered about this movie that it just ends with michael in a chair keeling over and dying and it's like a very anticlimactic like weird dumb ending it's just there to show you that he dies alone he doesn't get assassinated after all the attempts on his life he makes it through he just dies uh, you know sitting on this chair but i don't know it doesn't have like a real impact i didn't think i thought it was just like a oh yeah then he dies kind of like afterthought yeah, I mean, uh, that is the ending of this version of of the film. I'll talk about that in a moment. Before I get to that, what do you think, Al? 1990's The Godfather, part three. Does it stand the test of time? I really didn't enjoy this movie. I found it to be tedious and annoying and as confusing as the plots were in part one and part two. I just don't get this real estate thing at all. Also, there's no resolution to it. They don't end the movie with, 
what happens with the deal, and I don't really care about it any which way. I'm not really invested in the romance between Mary and Vincent because it just really creeps me the fuck out, to be honest. And honestly, that bothers me more than Sofia Coppola is not a great actor. I mean, no, she's not as great of an actor as Diane Keaton or Talia Shire, but, you know, whatever. That's not the biggest problem with this movie, I don't think. I think the movie does work in theory in some of the ways that it's like, After killing Fredo, Michael is destroyed by that even many, many years later. I like that they explore that. I like that they explore what that did to him psychologically, mentally, but it's just not enough. Even the idea of a plot that revolves around like corruption in the Catholic Church, honestly, I don't really know my church history, but in 1990 when this movie came out, was that ahead of its time? Was that like before all of the sex scandals were wide out in the open? Maybe. Like, that's interesting. It's kind of a bold move to point a finger at the Vatican and say, these guys are corrupt. Maybe that was a big deal in 1990. Maybe it wasn't. I don't really know. But I think that's interesting. But how it ties into the Corleone family, it doesn't really work. It doesn't make sense. It's a square peg, round hole thing. Also, it's a weird thing that this movie was made 16 years after Godfather Part 2, but it takes place like more than 20 years after. So Al Pacino and all the characters are like aged up and it just looks a little weird. It looks like Al Pacino in old man makeup. Like he's older, but they made him look like extra older. And I don't think they did a great job with that. Also, to be fair... The gangster genre, I've realized over the last three weeks, it's not my genre. I've seen Goodfellas a million times because my dad and sister loved it. It's just not a thing that really speaks to me. I enjoyed The Sopranos, but I don't seek out these kinds of movies. They're not really my thing. And after watching three of them in a row and like about nine hours of these Godfather movies, I was ready for this to be done. I was ready for the movie to be done. I was ready for this podcast episode to be done. There's other things I want to watch that don't have to do with the Corleones. I was just kind of exasperated by this. So no, it does not stand the test of time. What do you think? Um, you know, I'll agree with a couple of things you said. Uh, one of the good things I really like about this film, they explore the the Fredo guilt. That's probably one of the most interesting and unresolved parts of Michael Corleone. Like, what happens to someone once they commit this horrible crime? Even if he gets everything he wanted, you know, financially and his business, this can wreck him with guilt. However, I don't think it's explored enough, actually. I'm not sure I want the entire film wrapped around it, but it seems like there's like a couple good scenes with that, but it's not the tying thing together. Um, we already talked about how Pacino, kind of by now, he's doing a Pacino. Yeah. And while I enjoy that, it doesn't really do justice for this. And there were so many versions of this film that could have come out so many different ideas it was going to go in so many different directions but we talked about this a little bit last week about how they couldn't get uh marlon brando backs they kind of worked around him and you know what that last scene works perfectly fine without brando they didn't need him right but here they couldn't get uh robert duval back so they kind of had to work around that i know i really miss tom hagen in this movie yeah and like look it's like like, how much could Duval have asked for? Like, he wasn't going to pay as much as Pacino and Keaton were. Like, maybe he doesn't do as much as them, but like, 
give him a little bit more. Like, I think it would have been a lot better. This film made a lot of money. Like, whatever the couple million he wanted, like, I think they could have just paid him. Yeah. Or given him a couple points on the back end or something. You mentioned it, and I mentioned the last couple of films. I'm very confused by the plots of these films. But in the first two films... I didn't really care because I'm not sure who that guy is and I'm not really sure who's killing who and and who's behind this, but I'm getting the overall story. The problem with this film is this whole Vatican real estate plot, it's not that I couldn't just follow it. I was very uninterested in it. Yeah. And I figured if I'm going to watch this film... I'm going to watch the 2021 re-release. And I only watched the beginning and end because I saw that that's the only parts to watch. But there was a re-release of this film called Godfather, Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. And really, it's very, very similar. I'm sorry. I just need to interrupt you. So it's The Godfather, colon, Coda, colon, The Death of Michael Corleone? Are there two colons? No. So it's The Godfather. It has, you know, those, uh, the, the marionette icon. And where it mm-hmm. usually says part three, it instead fades in. It just says coda. And then the whole thing fades to black. And then it says, quote, The Death of Michael Corleone, close quote. So what hmm. this means, behind the scenes, Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, they didn't really want to make a third one. They thought the story was complete, but Paramount wanted more money because it's like, we don't really care about the accolades. We care about the money. Mm-hmm. So they basically got him to do it. And a big problem uh, Francis Ford Coppola has is he says, I don't like this thing part three mm. because I just kind of want to make a spin-off film like those first two films that is the father and son and the juxtaposition of those two and how they're both different but the same person and it works so well together I think changing it from part three to coda it helps it the opening it skips the, all of the Corleone mansion it goes right to the Vatican it's a very clear explanation of I want in on a mobile uh, international I didn't still quite get everything but that's what it is it still ends with him at uh, the villa in Sicily but he just puts those glasses on and just sits there and it fades to black like he is alone and he ends up alone but he doesn't die except the movie is called The Death of Michael Corleone yeah that's what I was about to say if you're going to call the movie the death of michael corleone then you really should show the death of michael corleone but it ends with like white text on black that says when a sicilian tells you something it means i wish you a long life and then it says a sicilian never forgets so what i believe he's saying is actually when a sicilian wishes you i wish you a long life they're not necessarily saying it as a good thing i will say one thing we didn't mention the scream that michael corleone yells out is only the scream that a father could have when he sees his daughter killed before him i mean that is almost hard to watch i would say that that was done very well And, and i think the death of michael corleone therefore is he lives a long life empty and powerless no Okay, Anthony seems to want nothing to do with him, probably blames him for killing his sister now. Sure. That's his quote-unquote death. One thing that might have helped this film a little bit is something I was fascinated to read about. Do you know about Godfather Part 4? Yeah, that they were talking about it. It was going to maybe be like sort of like Part 2 with a a young Sonny 
uh, rising to power and uh, like aging Vincent. Right? No, 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 no. Yes, it was going to be Vincent, and it's going to go. He's going to go into narcotics, and it's going to that whole like '90s thing, and it's really going to show the probably the fall of the Corleone family. But the juxtaposition was going to be they were going to get De Niro back. And remember last time you were the only thing you were upset about is you're like I like when he kills Dom Fanucci. That's fine. I don't get how he goes from Fanucci to being Brando in the first film. Like where's that jump? And that's what part four was gonna do. It was gonna show the 30s. They were gonna bring De Niro back. And I thought that would have been, you know, that might have helped this film. That might have said, you know, the third one wasn't as good as the first two, but it really set up that brilliant ending. And Mario Puzo died and something, 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 and never happened. And that's a good story. I even think that could be a story worth telling but getting back to what i said earlier coda verse part three this film it's not a third part it's completely unnecessary i think as a spin-off film it kind of works a little bit but overall it's just not an interesting film i don't care i would have been okay with some of the ideas they had but the finished film It's just not a story I wound up caring about, Michael Corleone. And it's a shame. It's not as bad as people remember it. It's not a bad film. If it didn't say The Godfather on it and it was just like mob film 1990, it's fine. Fine meaning like, okay, I watched on HBO one night. Fine. Like, it's no good, fellas. It's fine. But it's not a hated film, no. But I think because it's part three, it really does a disservice to it. It doesn't stand up. The first two films really today are entertaining films with a little help from wikipedia part three is not therefore it does not stand the test of time gotcha all right well that concludes our series on the godfather movies it also concludes every episode that we have ever done or ever will do that starts with the words 200 james next week is episode three I can't believe it. I am really excited. I'm kind of depressed. Why? You're saying we're not going to ever do episode 200,000? Uh, well, we could. You said we're never doing a, an episode number that's ever going to start with 200 again. 200,000 is a different number than 200. It starts with 200. Nah, I think that's fine. <laughs> um, I am really excited for episode 300. And I almost feel like we don't have to say the name of the movie that we're going to do for episode 300. You should get it. And if you don't, then just tune in next week and then you'll know. I agree. Join us next week for the 300th episode where we'll do a mystery movie for episode 300. I can't wait. That will be fun. Of course, as always, talk to us at Test of Time Pod, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us on all of the things. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review. You can email us, the test of time podcast at gmail.com. Love hearing from you. And uh, we'll see you next week for episode 300. Bye.